Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. Uh, I am Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. And uh, with us in the studio this week is Carvel Wallace, uh, a writer whose work has appeared at MTV, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, uh, and who most recently wrote a long-form history of the Negro Motorist Green Book. Carvel, welcome to the studio. Thanks uh, for having me. I am really glad that you're here for the opening of this episode, actually, because I wanted to start by talking about the greatest letter I have yet received mm-hmm. in in the Dear Prudence canon, which is uh, the woman whose boyfriend has a tattoo on his back that is either a rosary mm-hmm. or a pearl necklace okay. with a bead commemorating every woman he has either dated or slept with. That's, that's nice. And he has, I believe he's up to 42, uh-huh. and he recently, as a surprise, gifted her with an addition of four beads. Why? So she got four because... She got four. We're not clear. Okay. It, it seems to be maybe a rating system, like four, I don't know, four stars or a five star I see. is his scale. Yeah. But it was clearly like... You're four times better than those other gals. Than, than the one, than the one pearl or one bead lady. It's yeah. It's yeah. it's again. Uh, and I don't know how he like marks those. I don't know how she knows which four are hers. Okay. Um, and these people are in a relationship. Like they're, they are dating. They're, they're an been, item. I think they'd been together for a while. Okay. Uh, and it was just really wonderful because this was like a brand new letter. I've never had a question that was quite like this. I've had questions about weird boyfriends and bad tattoos, um, uh-huh. but this was really. This was brand new. This was a new problem. And and he sprang it on her like, hey, surprise, yes. I got you some beads to represent your By the level way, of accomplishment. And it sounds like up until this moment, she had thought that the tattoo was just like a religious tattoo. Like, like a general like, rosary. He's Catholic. Like, he's got a rosary. Like a non-sex related. No, no. A non-doing it rating system. I get a new one every time I, I have a new sexual partner. <laughs> and baby, you're the latest. <laughs> well, I this is, I, I hope she feels flattered because this is a wonderful thing this man has done to, mem- to memorialize all I can his think of. caring and love for her. All I can think of is the Count of Monte Cristo, like marking the days in his cell, you know, <laughs> the, with Roman yeah, numerals. There is something, there is something prison like about the whole arrangement, but it almost makes it feel like that, he, um, you know, for him, each person he sleeps with is some kind of like, uh, it's like his last chance for something. It definitely feels like he's something big's going to happen emotionally when he runs out of room on his back. I think the the question maybe that's when he get married. See, you're, you're always taking it to the dark place. Maybe he's <laughs> building up to a lifelong commitment. But I, but the thing I wonder about most is like, so she's got four, right? Like he made he added four beads and said, "Baby, this you're 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 a four." No bead one's lady. gotten four before. Oh, so it's like so she she set a record. It, it, it like would seem, center. but it also seems like he sort of switched it up. It used to just be like one per person, uh-huh. and now it's turned into a rating system. And, I see. And it seems like a little arbitrary, just well, sort of like, you get four. Well, the statistician in me does not like that at all. Because yeah. uh, as we know from Major League Baseball, if you don't count records the same way over time, then how you can how can you compare a player from one era to a player from another era. So he's like, like he's like the Pete Rose of sex tattoos. In some ways, he is because he, he violates the game. I I, I feel really good about knowing that. <laughs> That's your reference. one sports reference for like I think the millennia. If I'm I not I get that, and also everything from the Homer at the Bat episode of The Simpsons. Right. Those all, two. all Simpsons sports related things aside. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That's about all I have. Yeah. Um. But I, I think my other the other thing about it that was just so amazing is he has this like very personal sexual history tattoo. <clears throat> tattooed on a part of his body that it's okay he to can't get choked see. up this is an emotional thing this is a beautiful thing i i, I understand like, why he can't see his own right. sexual scorecard <laughs> right. he has to like right right he has to take other people's word for it yeah. but it's there yeah well it's because he, he's put all that stuff behind him you see. oh hey, hey. where's okay. the uh where's um, the rim shot that's you don't I, have that i i just thank you <laughs> thank you for that um no but i loved that question it was wonderful um if if anyone who is listening has a better ex with a really strange or ill-advised tattoo story please uh let me know please send pictures yeah uh prudence at slate.com um, I, I would like to get more questions about uh, tattoo-initiated arguments, actually. Yeah. Let's, let's have more of those in the studio. Okay. Uh, we will. 
Great. Have you ever have you ever gotten in a fight with someone about a tattoo or the idea of a tattoo? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I got a tattoo of my mother's name on my arm. Uh, and it was not under the best of circumstances. It was right after she died, and I was really depressed. And I looked up her name in in Google Images one morning. Oh wow! And the image that came up was like the logo for this stationery card company that has the same name she did. And I just went and got that tattooed on my arm. So uh, no one fought with me about that because I think everyone was just like, "He's he, like no one's gonna is, no one's gonna like come at you directly about that." Right. But I think. I think there was there was conflict implied. Do you wish that someone had tried to hold you back? You know, the irony of it is that it's actually a really beautiful tattoo. And it turns out that this company changes their logo on a semi-regular basis. So when I went back to to uh, look at the tattoo, like the Google image after I got the tattoo done, mm-hmm. it was totally different. It was like in ransom letters. <laughs> and so if my mother had died like a, like a week later... I would have had her name tattooed on my arm. I never and, thought I would say this, but I'm really glad your mom died when she did. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Things have a way of working out. But the tattoo, it ended up being beautiful. It was a beautiful logo, and I'm happy I got it. Uh, it looks nice. I've seen it. Yeah. It was yeah. not under the best of circumstances, but yeah, no, much there, of life is not. It's it's not it's not a heart with the word mom written no, over it, which I think not. could have been a real step down. Right. Um, right. Have you ever gotten in a fight with someone else over a tattoo that they got? I'm going to have to dig in the crates to to like remember that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I've ever. I try not to take people's tattoos personally. You know what I'm saying? Well, we're just not going to get along. <laughs> have you? Is I that, always I take every tattoo for, I see personally. Okay, I see tattoos on strangers and okay. I take it personal. Can you tell me about a situation in which you have had a fight with someone about? I have a lot of fights in my head with people about their <laughs> tattoos. Um, it is hard, but especially once someone's gotten one, right? You can't. What can you? All you can do is make them feel bad about something they can't really change. It's a little bit like when someone has a baby and they name it something god awful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you're like, you can't say you can't anything because you bell. can't unring that bell. Yeah, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, and I think most people, when they're asking for advice on a tattoo, have already made up their minds, and right. what they're really looking for is for you to betray the fact that you don't like their idea. <laughs> right. And then when they get it, they can say, "Well, now do you like it?" That's right. And you have to say, "Oh yeah, That's right. oh you know when I was picturing it, I thought you meant." That's right. Something that's worse, right. but this is, I like yeah, this. It's, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, oh. I've seen some terrible tattoos. Yeah. They happen. Yeah, but um, I'm glad that you're able to to let that go. Okay, uh, before we get started by talking about the letters from mm. this week, uh, I want to make one announcement about uh, a new policy, oh. uh, which is there's a certain type of letter that comes in a lot, especially to the Dear Prudence inbox that has to do with wedding etiquette. Mm. Which is already, I might not be the best person to ask about that because there are kind of classic areas of wedding etiquette that I um, don't don't really agree love. with the sort of uh, received wisdom. Um, but especially there's a certain type of question about wedding etiquette, which isn't, uh, should I do the thing I'm considering? Or, you know, is it okay for me to decline this invitation because something happened that really upsets me? But it's just asking for a ruling. Usually about how the the couple that's getting married has arranged their uh, registry or the way in which they're asking for gifts or I money. Um, and, and what the writer always wants to know is just, don't you think that's tacky? Right. So they, people come to you for like a judgment. Yes. Like, you're like, like, like it's they, the people's court. They just want a stranger to say, that is tacky. Right. You should feel quietly superior to right. those people. Right. Um, and I, I, that's not a very interesting question. And I also like it's 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 the question I got most recently was this couple uh, asked for they had like a crowdfunding set up so that we could help pay for their honeymoon if we wanted, uh, and and the, the the letter writer said I actually always give money at weddings but I still don't like this don't you think it's tacky <laughs> and I think it's really weird the way the word tacky gets used about mm, other people's weddings yes and I'm not quite sure what it is that bothers me but it feels like this really has a lot to do with class in a mm-hmm. way that feels uncomfortable Mm. um and like i think you can always get more specific if what you mean is like rude or presumptuous say Mm -hmm. that if what you mean is just i don't like it right it's not the way i would do it yeah Yeah. which is the question is like don't you think i should like disapprove of them like i guess man but like you already went to the wedding you weren't asking if you shouldn't go you weren't you're not apparently not close enough to them to say like hey i actually think it's rude of you to ask your guests for for money for your honeymoon which I don't know why a KitchenAid isn't rude, 
but a honeymoon is. Right. That well, feels a little arbitrary to me. Well, I think that is the thing that you're getting at with this whole notion of whether or not stuff is tacky because, like, these weird, like, class markers of what's appropriate and not etiquette-wise mm-hmm. are completely freaking arbitrary. Right. And, th- and they're arbitrary f- specifically for the reason that if you don't know them, it just means that you didn't grow up. In the right way. In the way. right, yeah, yeah, it, you it should know. It, have, like, none of them has any real value. Like, why it's okay to give someone a mixer and not okay to give someone, like, an envelope filled with cash. Sure. Makes no difference. Like, they're the same thing, literally, but by knowing that the mixer is okay and the envelope isn't, you're proving that you have this, that you come from this, this like, background. Right. And by not knowing that, you're proving that you don't belong. Right. And that's what weddings are about. They're about belonging. Yes. And they're about you joining a families and ideas, and people are like, I don't know if I accept. This person is now coming into our fold. We have our way of doing things, and, like, if you do something weird, that means maybe you don't belong here. Yeah, I, and I think that <clears throat> you've hit on why those questions bother me, because it sort of feels like, I mean, honeymoons are expensive. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people would rather go on a trip with someone they love than get a stand mixer that's yeah. like $300 yeah. for something that is essentially a whisk. Well. Like a whisk plus a really strong arm that, that doesn't get bit. tired. Stand mixers are badass. They always leave a mm. ring that they can't get to. I prefer, mm. what's the kind of mixer that you use with your hand? Like the beaters are still electric, but you can move it around. The hand mixer? Yeah, that's the one. But that's, I mean, all due respect. Most like 40 bucks, All probably. due respect. I can't remember the last time I bought one. All due respect. I don't, I don't know that you've done enough baking to fully appreciate. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. right. Wow, okay. We just went there. Okay. To fully appreciate the Aerial massive woman difference. woman bakes insufficiently. <laughs> this is true. I mean, you're baking a cake, some brownies, sure, a hand mixer's fine, but once you start getting into, like, all the different kinds of folds that you have to do to get, like, different batters to set up in different ways and be aerated on different levels... I don't like where this conversation is going because I feel like I went from being right to not being so right. That's, yeah. And I would like to stop. Conversely, I enjoy this conversation, <laughs> so that just goes to show. Well, the point is uh, I, I don't bake that much, uh, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't write to me if you just want me to confirm that someone did something tacky at their wedding, especially if you already went there's it's too late to do anything well, about it. Especially because that's not really an advice question. It right. isn't what should I do. It's just like, don't you agree with the way I feel? Right, and I'm not Miss Manners. Right. And even Miss Manners, I feel like, is pretty relaxed about uh, deciding that other people are or aren't tacky. Like, she'd rather she'd rather get a question about what you should do rather right. than how you should feel. Because regulating people's feelings is actually bad manners. <sighs> I'm upset by how good you are at this oh. and the fact that you bake more than me. I will dial it back. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so on that note, uh, Carvel is going to help me answer a couple of questions uh, today. And a lot of them are pretty intense. So okay. let's uh, let's jump right into it. Let's jump right in. Sleeves rolled up here. Yeah. So uh, the first one uh, is called loss of child. Oh, wow. It's slightly more metaphorical than you think. <laughs> so I guess don't worry so much. Um, Dear Prudence, I adopted a very troubled foster child when she was six years old. She had a myriad of problems, including reactive attachment disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. I got her into a special needs school and took her to three to five therapy sessions every week for 12 years. She hated living with me and longed to go back to her birth parents. She ran away eight times. When she was 18, she moved back in with her birth parents, and I grieved her loss for three years. Now that I finally feel resolved with that part of my life, she's begun calling me and telling me that her birth parents have rejected her, and now she wants money and help. My family says to ignore her and that she is only using me. I'm afraid to open myself up to that pain again. What do you think? Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, so this question actually hits home for me because this is not totally unlike my own childhood Mm -hmm. in that I um, was taken in by a family that wasn't my birth family when I was eight. uh, And then I returned to live with my mother when I was, they were like extended relatives. And then I returned to live with my mother when I was like 13. And, and, uh, and actually, that the, that same thing happened when I was f- uh, 18 months, too. I went mm-hmm. to live with another set of relatives and then returned to my mother at four. So I know how, like, crazy uh, it can be when um, you change families a lot. And, like, reactive attachment disorder is a phrase I didn't. Hadn't didn't know until someone told me, but when I heard about it, I was like, "Oh, that's exactly how I felt." Yeah, what is that? By the way, I haven't heard that before. Well, I'm not qualified to like really put it into super duper like legit words, okay. so I could just be spouting weird stuff. But the way I understand it is that it has to do with like we form like our what's happening in early childhood 
like like infancy and mm-hmm. our early like bonding with our using maternal figures is that we're learning how to build reaction like uh, how to build attachments and mm-hmm. how to connect and expect p- things from people and want things from people and know how to show up and have people show up for us and all that's happening really early like in the first like three four months mm-hmm. you know and uh, when kids have that disrupted mm-hmm. then they they have they they react and don't react to attachment in weird ways right they bond to people they shouldn't bond to they let go of people at like random moments they're a- able to shut down their like emotions it's a whole bunch of right. and that leads to a whole bunch of other weird stuff so like a teacher might find that they build a relationship with that kid and it seems super cool and then halfway through the year that kid just does something really terrible mm. that like and the teacher's like what was that i thought we were cool yeah and that person just was hurtful to me but that's a kid who's like struggling with how to properly build and maintain relationships right <clears throat> I, I think too one thing that leapt out at me in the way that this letter was written um is it's incredibly emotionally constricted. Mm. Like the the letter writer, and I, I don't want to ascribe anything about the letter writer's like emotional um, makeup from mm-hmm. that, but just like, it's just, she had a lot of problems. I took her to many therapy sessions. She hated living with me and ran away. There was nothing of, mm-hmm. I really loved her. Mm-hmm. I was really sad that yeah. I couldn't, you yeah. know, help her open up in the way I wanted. Uh, I, I tried to give her a lot of love. And again, that doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. I just, that really stands out to me that this letter feels like it was written by someone who who is trying to put all of their feelings in like a two by four box. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and I, I mean, I think, I think when you take on, I mean, raising children is super duper hard. And I think when you take on a child at a certain age, and you kind of bring them into your life, and they already have a set of issues that you didn't quite create. Mm-hmm. That can be really hard, and I think parents react to that in different ways. Some parents are just like, "I'm going to leave my heart open," and blah blah blah. But sometimes kids are those kids are really difficult, mm. and parents feel double crossed and double crossed again and again. And sometimes the response to that is to sort of be like, "I have to maintain." what appear to be some boundaries of coldness, Mm -hmm. but are really boundaries of, like, me just, like, not getting swept up in this person's tornado. Mm -hmm. That having been said, I think that when you take a kid in at that age, you're making a commitment. Yeah. And and that's what you've signed up for. One time my own daughter, who I did not adopt— I was complaining. I think I've told you this before. I was—they were in the the car, and they were loud. I I had two kids. They were—at that point, this was, like, three years ago, so they were— seven and you know 10 or something and uh they were so loud and it was so annoying and finally i was like guys can you just with the noise can you knock it off and my daughter goes if you didn't want it to be loud don't have kids (laughs) 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 and it was one of those moments where i was like actually she's right and i've kind of held that as a little bit of a credo like i did sign up for this and Mm -hmm. i think that and that doesn't mean that you that you're happy about everything. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you love everything. It doesn't mean you let whatever happens. But it means that that's part of the commitment that you make when you invite a child. Because I don't think there's anything crueler right. than, especially for someone that's already experienced a break in that attachment, yeah. to say like, "I'm here for you. I love you. I support you." And then, and then, and if my love is unconditional. And then now you're acting in a way I don't like. Never mind. Right. And I think that can sometimes come up right with things like adoption and fostering kids like there was the sort of famous story a few years back of a woman who had adopted a young boy from Russia mm. uh, and he came to her I think around seven or eight years of age and a year later she sent him back on a plane with Ooh. a note pinned to him Jesus. just like I can't raise him wow. um, and not I, not to compare the letter writer to that situation but I think sometimes especially in America um, there's a narrative about adoption that's a little bit like you're doing someone a favor yes um they should be grateful. Yes. And if they don't deserve your love and affection, you should cut them off. That comes a little quicker than it does with biological children. Like, I'm trying yes. to read this. I think if if I read this and it was not, I adopted a troubled foster child, but it was just my daughter's very troubled. She has a lot of issues. She ran away when she was 18. Like, she moved out, and now she's in touch with me again. I think there'd be slightly less of everyone in my life says she's just using you. Don't talk to her. Yes. Like this. People don't say that your children are just using you as quickly as they say that about adopted children. Right. Right. And again, I don't want to, there's very little to go on in this letter. I don't want to suggest the letter writer is uh, like responsible for this narrative or is a bad person. But I, I, I think this person, this girl's your daughter. Like full right. stop. Not, not adopted daughter. She's but daughter. your daughter. That's Even right. though she ran away to live with her birth parents. Like. Right. 
you know, the three to five therapy sessions you drove her to every week for 12 years aren't something she owes you for. That was something that you did that made you her parent. And so I think, don't think of that as like, so she fucking owes me gratitude and good behavior. Think of that as, I did that for my kid. And she might never be the like healthy, well-adjusted adult I would love for her to be. But I didn't do that as a favor to someone else's kid to get them to become mine. Yeah. One of the other things that that struck me about the, the way this letter is constructed, and this is more the writer in me that sort of like reads about how, you know, reads through the lines about how people organize their arguments, is that, she, you know, she, I, I, I'm assuming it's a she, I don't know actually, but right. it, it occurs to me that like this thing about her going back to her birth parents mm-hmm. probably felt like something of a betrayal. Right. Uh, um, because simply because of where it appears in the narrative. Like yeah. I sort of did all this stuff and then she went and did this thing and people are now saying she's using me as, as though the fact that she went to find her birth parents is evidence right. that this other quote unquote non birth parent is simply a, a pawn in this young woman's right. game. Right. Right. Um, and so I can, I can empathize with a feeling of betrayal at that point. Mm-hmm. Because I, one thing I also noticed in my own experience is how the parent that takes over for the parent that has failed mm-hmm. usually has terrible opinions of the parent that has failed. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I know that, you know, that's something that comes up where a parent is like, you you know, like they don't trust the mother or whomever that has left and they don't think you should either. Right. And so if you develop your own point of view about right. that parent that abandoned you, that's really hurtful to the parent that took you in. And it must somehow be a moratorium on the way that I tried to raise you. That's right. You, um, you're rejecting my thing altogether. Right. Right. Yeah. So I would I, I would try to urge this letter writer, I think, not to think of her getting to be with her birth parents as a rejection of you. Absolutely. It's actually pretty understandable that she would want to have, if possible, some sort of relationship with them. And it's actually very sad that her birth parents have yet again turned her out. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, and again, that doesn't make her... Uh, an easy person to get along with and that doesn't necessarily mean that you guys uh, are going to be able to have some sort of like flawless uh, parent-child relationship but like this is a young person in a lot of pain yeah Um, and that doesn't mean you have to give her money i don't know what she's like with money uh there's nothing in here about what she wants the money for like is this money for food and rent or is this just money because she'd like to squeeze something out of you um, like you'll have to kind of think about that as you decide whether or not you do want to help her financially. Um, but but uh, if she just it says money and help, like yeah, yeah, I I, I think yeah. you should consider very seriously taking that call. Yeah. Um, and even if it's painful, I would agree. Yeah, because I mean, I think the main thing here is this feeling that like once you adopt someone, you no longer have adopted them. Yeah. Yeah. They're now your child. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat and let her dictate the terms of your relationship forever. You can absolutely set limits. Like if she becomes like verbally abusive or or, or yeah. tries to harm you in some way, like right. absolutely draw a boundary. Um, but if you are just so upset that she went to be with her birth parents that you would like to reject her in turn, right? you're the parent. You have to be bigger than that. Yeah. Um, and she's your kid. She's always going to be your kid. Yeah. Um, and so, unfortunately, you're going to have to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish them a lot of luck. That yeah. sounds really hard. Yeah, that um, is a hard situation. Well, would you like to move on to a letter called The Worst Aunt in the World? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're, we're, we're on a roll. All right. So, uh, worst, worst aunt in the world. Aunt or aunt? Go ahead. Moving I on. I say aunt personally. Yeah, I, 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 I feel thought. like for a, a podcast, I should say aunt. Is that so? Fascinating. I feel like it's more formal, and I'm also worried that uh, people would think I meant the bug. Okay. Then, <laughs> yeah, this is the worst ant I've ever seen. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> dear Prudence, my nephew suffers from a rare disease, and my sister-in-law has found a doctor in Europe who has successfully treated a number of patients with the same illness. She wants to take her son there for treatment, except the costs are very expensive. As the odds of survival remain low, her insurance doesn't cover it. She's raised as much money as she can from family and various fundraisers, but it's not nearly enough. She approached me last week in tears pleading for financial assistance. I have a large amount of savings in the bank, which I've been saving since I was 12. My fiancé and I were planning to buy a home this year. My sister-in-law is asking to borrow all of it. And realistically, she can't repay me unless she wins the lottery someday. 
I worked two jobs ever since college and have sacrificed a lot thinking of my own future. Giving all my money now would mean a huge financial setback and long-term repercussions for me. But how can I say no when this means that otherwise my nephew will die before the next new year? Please help. I'm torn. Wow. So, um, one time I went to ask a friend of mine for advice on something and, uh, I was like, it was like a moral dilemma. Like, should I, or should I not do this? And he said to me, the fact that you're asking means that you already know what the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you wouldn't have to, right. You wouldn't be asking, you're asking for my permission to do the wrong thing, right. but you know what the right thing is. Right. And, um, that that sort of comes to mind when I hear this because it <clears throat> makes me think about why this person has written this letter. Like why? Like if they if they want to, like they know the right thing to do is to help in the situation, mm-hmm. but they don't want to have to. Yeah, and they're asking if it's okay to not. Yeah, and so really, it's not a question of like what is. The right or wrong. Right. You know that. Versus what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Is it like personally, spiritually, morally, publicly acceptable to deny this money? And the situation is so dire because it's really like your money or your life. Yeah. It's like this thing standing between me and the death of this relative. Right. Is this amount of money that I've saved. And, and more than the death of, of this boy, because it sounds like, you know, this isn't a sure thing. This isn't like this treatment is almost guaranteed to cure him. But it would be the difference between a death where it felt like they were able to do everything they could to try to save yeah. a very young person from yeah. dying, you know, an untimely death versus we did all we could. Sometimes in life you face an illness that no amount of money or treatment can cure. I mean, if, if, like, I guess the way I would think of it is, like, if you gave the money yes. and he died anyways, yeah. to me, the gift you would be giving his mother is the knowledge that she didn't let her son die when there was a chance someone could have helped him. And I just, I feel so strongly that that would be worth it. Well, um, well the flip side of that, too, which leads to the same conclusion is, this is one of the ones we have to play the tape forward and be like, if I don't give the money... Mm-hmm. And this person dies. Mm-hmm. How am I going to feel in ten years, fifteen years, twenty years? Yeah. Like, to what extent is that going to like trouble me? Yeah, in my beautiful house yeah. that I get to buy with the money I've right. been saving since I was twelve. That someone was like, and, and I don't. And it's interesting because usually in letters like this, it seems like people offer some mitigating stuff. Right. Like I know this is the right thing to do, but my sister in law is always running these scams. I or hate her. Blah, blah, yeah, hate yeah. Her or, or she has a history of lying about exactly. illness. But there's none of that here, mm-hmm. and so it re- this really feels like it's not like it's not like the sister in law is like always always coming to borrow money. It's not one of those weird moral things you get sometimes where it's like, this person's always struggling with money. I right. shouldn't have to help them. Right. And um, it's just like, here's the situation. I have this money and I don't want to let it go because it could have repercussions for me mm-hmm. if I let it go. And I'm like, but if you don't let it go, it'll have pretty severe repercussions maybe for you also and definitely for people that, again, based on the letter, I'm assuming you're our, our family members that you are currently in good and loving standing with. Yeah. And honestly, even if you only sort of like them, you know, you're, right. you're <laughs> right, like right. brother's child. That's a close relationship. And that's a young, you know what I mean? It's not like, well, he's already in his 70s. Maybe yeah. it's time. This is a child. Yeah. And I, I feel like reading this, I feel like this letter writer has their heart in the right place. Yeah. I think they know what they have to do. Yeah. I think their real question is, why is life so unfair? Mm. And not just why was it unfair to mm. my brother and his wife and their child, but why do I have to suffer? Like, as a result, why can't they get the money some other way? Yeah. And that just sucks. I'm really sorry. Like, yeah. you've worked really hard and you really had your heart set on something that's important, but not more important than a sick kid. And it's got to hurt and feel unfair to think all the things that I've spent my time thinking about and working towards all of a sudden are totally trumped by some random thing that I didn't even like right. have anything to do with. Right. Just got foisted on me. You know, one, like, I, I keep replaying this letter in my head and trying to find what is the logistical reason why you'd be reluctant. I mean, I understand you don't want to give up your life savings, 
But I keep being like, is the sister-in-law, do they have a bad relationship or something like that? And the other question that I keep wondering is why didn't the brother come and ask? Hmm. Yeah, because it says too. my sister-in-law. Yeah. yeah. So I, the brother's not even mentioned. So I don't, that that to me is a random, it's a thread you can't follow because yeah. you would just be guessing. Too many but, unknowns. But uh, But the only way that you could really, I think you could really morally justify bulking at this proposition is if there were some tremendous and specific damage. And I don't even know what that would be. Right. That would like trump the life of a child. The the only thing that I can think of right now, weirdly, uh, I, I, I don't often get biblical on the show. Oh, here we go. Uh, but it reminds me of the book of Esther, which is uh-huh. from um, the, the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, if you're playing as a Protestant, um, mm-hmm. And the, the basic story is that Esther is a, a young Jewish woman who kind of through a series of, of outrageous events becomes the wife uh, of the king of this great kingdom. And he doesn't know that she's Jewish and kind of like in the background, one of his advisors is sort of plotting to um, uh, carry out a, like a pogrom against all the Jews in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and her cousin is this beggar. He sits outside the city gates. His name is Mordecai. And she calls to him one evening and she kind of says, you know, the king doesn't know that I'm Jewish. If I go to him and and kind of ask him to to protect us as a people, um, I'm sort of afraid that he'll he won't help me or that he'll think less of me or that I'll get in trouble. Um, I was I'm afraid to do something that I know is the morally right thing to do. Mm. And Mordecai says to her, you know, here's the thing: if you remain silent, help might come from another corner, and you'll have to live with that. And who knows that uh, whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Like he kind of reframes uh, it as maybe this is why you're maybe here. This is, maybe this is why you saved the money. Right. Like, yeah, maybe yeah. this is why you saved the money yeah. so that you could be a part of something that would either yeah. save a child or at the very least give his parents a peace of mind of knowing that they did everything they could to save his life. Yeah. And there's also the old, if you, if the situation were reversed. I, I just think it's going to be <laughs> you know. something that, like, it's going to be unfair and shitty in parts, mm. and you're going to be able to sleep really well. Mm. Um, and that's an important part of being a person, I think, is mm. is making decisions that don't, like, a year or five years or ten years from now wake you up in the middle of the night and make you think, oh, my God, how did I miss that? Mm. And I don't think you're going to feel that way um, if you if you give them the money. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. give them the money. Give them the money and let us know how we, things go. We rule. Give them the money. Ding, yep. Ding. Okay. Uh, so uh, the, the the nice thing is we're like slowly moving in a <laughs> in a gentler direction. These, these letters very slowly get less and less sort of earth shattering. Good because I don't know how much deeper. <laughs> yeah. Dear yeah. Prudence, my hand was chopped they off. They do by a baby. <laughs> they do by my baby. By as my a baby of fact. has chopped my hand off. Um. Uh, they do. They do continue in a sort of uh, financial vein, and these yeah. are all sort of like how do I how do I mix relationships and money, um, okay. family, romantic, etc. You don't. Moving uh, on. You don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's always like some people who want the answer to be, can I just live in a cave and make financial <laughs> right. decisions in a vacuum and never be affected by other people's right. decisions? And right. I, I would love to be able to help more of you do that, but I don't think that's going to be possible. Uh, so. Uh, the subject of this one is, should I continue to accept financial help from my ex-fiancé? Dear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, dear Prudence, seven months ago, I decided to end my engagement after I became tired of repeatedly catching my fiancé on dating sites and hearing rumors about him flirting with other women in our circle of friends. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly after one incident with a woman he hired at his job. He then married her three months after I broke off our engagement. Wow. Since then, he has explained that he did it out of spite and wants a divorce. Mm, the old spite wedding. You can't keep interrupting me when I'm reading sorry, the letter. Sorry. sorry. I, <laughs> as much understood. as I love having you kind of like pepper it with like call and response. Okay. Uh, and wants a divorce. I believe this is a total lie and he just wants to try and have the both of us. He did move out from living with his wife and will be living with his mother, her husband, and his younger siblings for the next year while he supposedly handles the divorce and looks for a new place. Also about a month ago, he confessed to me that she is four months pregnant. This letter is so much. Uh, Now I would gladly tell him to go to hell if he wasn't constantly offering to pay my bills for me, 
which has become a great help to me since I work part-time and still have car payments to pay off. What should I do? Okay, actually, it sounds like she's kind of already taking the money, possibly. It's become a great help to me makes it sound like she has been taking the money. She's already in. Maybe. Uh, maybe maybe she just phrased it sort of awkwardly, but... How did she title the letter again? Should I continue taking money? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. No, okay. you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Should I continue okay. to accept financial help from my ex-fiance? Okay. So uh, she's validated that she's already in. Yeah. So she, she is was... taking the money. And so the question... So the changing... So the, the point at which it changes direction for her is, like, why is this coming up as a question now? I, I have a theory uh-huh. about that. Okay. Which is this... It feels like she's really kind of trying to remind herself of how mad she is. I see. Do you know, like, she says, like, okay, yeah, he did move out. Yeah, he is living with his mom now, so he has put a stop to their relationship. And I wonder if part of her is worried if they continue to be entangled in one another's lives. That she will forget what a sleazebag he is. Right. And get involved. Right, because... Especially given that he's about to become a father. Right, because the the initial offense that, like would throw into question how much longer you're going to, like, interact with this dude mm-hmm. took place some time ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, with the end, the, th- the ending of the marriage and, like, all this stuff, she doesn't seem to like that he... I mean, the the repetitive cheating episodes... Yeah, no, this was bad enough before we even got to the money. Exactly. I was I was ready to, like, throw out a judgment, and then it, then it turned into, by the way, he's giving me money. Right, so after that, she's taking money from the guy. Mm-hmm which you could have a whole question about whether or not that's appropriate, but let's assume that everything's fine with that. Mm -hmm. So the question is like, why is it coming up now? Why is now suddenly the moment where it's like, should I continue this? Yeah. Uh, It's either got to be just that she's starting to feel guilty Mm. or that she hates having him feel like he's entitled to some of her time, which I imagine he, he sounds like possibly the kind of person who, I mean, he, he he sounds willing to do a lot of pretty terrible stuff. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. Be like, hey, guy. you know, if I'm paying for your stuff, like you have to get dinner with me. Right. Um, but and, she didn't mention that in the letter. No, that's just a theory. Uh, and and then, well, she says, I would gladly tell him to go to hell if he weren't constantly offering to pay my bills for me. So I think what she's saying is, I want him out of my life completely, but I can't do that as long as I'm taking money from him. Why is he offering to pay her bills? This this thing, this is an onion. This is a mm-hmm. this is a Mobius strip of questions. We just keep unpacking. Why is why is he paying her money? I have to imagine because he really wants her to stay in his life and that's the only thing he can offer her now because he's so completely ruined his kind of character with her. He's breadcrumbing. Yeah. As the kids call it. Um Th- wow. Do they call it that? That's good. I just learned that recently. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that thing where you kind of like drop little things to keep someone attached in mm, your life without yeah. actually giving them the thing. So I think we're both in agreement that she should not like indefinitely take money from him right. so and that, stay a part of his life. Exactly. So that leads me to my first kind of like solution that I thought of, which is that she talked about a car payment, mm-hmm. right? What is the end point of this? You have yeah. to have one. When's your car going to get paid off? <laughs> Literally. When is are you trying to amass a certain amount of savings? You're trying to pay off a credit card like this guy is offering you money. Yeah. And for what and you feel that you need it or that it helps tremendously. Uh I would say you have to then set for yourself a situation because you're you're in this state where you're like, I don't quite know what to do and there's no, nothing is going to change. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like he's becoming more and more terrible and I have to stop right. or he just did this one awful thing and now I'm in a bind right. or I just fell into a financial hole and now I, I, I don't know what to do. This is an ongoing situation. And so in an ongoing situation, you have to make a decision about when it's going to stop being ongoing. Yeah. And I would maybe set something for myself and say like, you know, God damn it, at the end of, like, August 2016, <laughs> that's my last check from this dude. You know, after I take another couple of checks from you, I never want your dirty money again. Um, I, I, I think I would go ahead and say, you know what, I'm going to pick a number. I'm going to say three months. Uh-huh. Because he's about to owe a lot in child support. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's, he's about to have his financial uh, energies directed elsewhere. Because I think that he does seem to be heading for a divorce. And uh, if his... Uh, other ex is four months pregnant. Um, he's probably going to have some sort of financial responsibility. And you don't want to be involved in your ex's custody battles with his ex. It's not even your ex-husband. It's your ex-fiance. Yeah. No. I think it's not as if you're under, like, mountains of student debt. Like, you have a car to finish paying off. It's nice, but you don't. 
it, this isn't making the difference between like having a place to sleep at night and otherwise. I think it will be worth so much more than money to have this man out of your life sure. forever. Yes. Three months. Okay. Three months. But the question, the one question I have is like this, this weird sentence of like he left, he says he left her, but he's really just doing it so he can have both of us. That's a weird thing to think. Mm-hmm. That like why, like, I don't know. That's well, just, I mean, it sounds, I mean, he was always lying about like, I'm not cheating on you before. She probably just doesn't trust him. Okay, when but he, he, says he's but he moved something. out and moved in with his parents. Does she really think that he's doing all that as part of like, a magnificent ruse to I keep her. I, I I feel like that's beyond my ability to make a call on. We like, need to figure out this person's entire psychological no. profile, no. and we need to do it stat. Three months. You're allowed three more months. Enjoy the money. Plan to stop receiving the money soon, uh, and don't ever talk to him again. We have ruled three months. Never talk to him again. Yeah. Down your interest rates. Yeah, exactly. All right. Cool. <laughs> we need a gavel. Is there? There's no gavel drop here. What no, kind of, there's not. I'm sorry. What kind of advice line is this? I apologize. Uh, the subject of this next letter is my old husband. Oh. Dear Prudence. Yeah, no no commentary this time, <laughs> please. Nothing, nothing. Appreciate it. My lips are sealed. My old husband. Dear Prudence, when I was in my late 20s, I married a man significantly older than myself, almost 60. Many people warned me that things might be fine in the beginning, but eventually the age gap would pose a problem. I knew better, of course, so we got married anyway. The marriage has never been wonderful or even good. Adequate might be the best description. We never really fought because we never really talked. We had a good lifestyle with lots of vacations, mostly because he retired five years after our weddings and a great house. I'm sorry, after our wedding and a great house. Now my husband is 75. He has many health problems, nothing major or terminal, uh, but they do get in the way of our life together. He has trouble walking long distances, for example. His memory is also starting to fade. He no longer wants to fly, and we had to cancel a recent planned trip to Europe because of a blood clot he had. His children never liked me, and I know they'd love to have me out of their lives. I've been wondering if I should go to the son I communicate with best and suggest a solution. I know they really want him in a senior living environment, which I'm too young for. I think they'd be thrilled to give me a certain amount of money if I would get their father to commit to a a nice place and then disappear. Personally, I see nothing wrong with this. As I've said, the marriage was never that great anyway. But the one friend I suggested this to thought it was not a good idea. What do you think? I had to actually step away from the mic to mask my my, my shocks of my, of horror, my gasps. Like this is like the villain from a children's novel. Well, which the, the, this thing is like she this person writes this whole letter to be like I'm not one of those people who marries someone just for money, but then everything in the letter suggests that on some level she actually never suggested that she was not married for money (laughs) she just said everyone said we shouldn't get married right right well i mean so you enter a marriage with someone that is like 40 some odd years your senior 25 let's not get carried away Wait, i thought she was in her 20s and he was was in her late 20s and he was almost 60 i see okay okay so so still a huge age gap so huge age gap everyone is going huh that's weird. Uh, she's like, no, we're really in love. And then the marriage is never good. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you imagine one of those marriages between an old dude and a young woman to be like. Uh, and then now she's like, well, he's gotten a little old for me to even squeeze whatever tiny bit of enjoyment I was. We got some nice vacations. That was the best part. And now he's getting too old for me to enjoy whatever I could get out of him. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should just get my final payment and keep it moving. That all, to me, sounds like pretty textbook gold digging. I mean, I'm sorry. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, no, I I, I think the way that she describes their getting together is very cold and transactional. Mm. Um, And she's definitely thinking about this in terms of a business proposition. Like her sort of, like, it's like she's got a little notebook out and she's like, what's the best ROI for everyone involved? Exactly. Um, Yeah. And I, I, frankly, I don't think she has any bones about that. Like, I think she's pretty. That's what, yeah. And so my, my, so my feeling about what she's doing is a little bit different than like the advice. Cause the advice is like, I mean, yeah, if you want to like go to this person's kids with this proposition, have at it. Just don't be surprised if they don't treat you kindly. Yeah. I have a feeling if you go to his son and ask for a lot of money to divorce his dad. Ransom. Let's call it yeah, what it is. Let's, 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 let's call it what it is. Let's, let's call it what it and is. And you ask for ransom. Um, my guess is he's not going to give you a lot of money. Uh, I think he's going to hate you, 
even more than he does now. Um, she and doesn't he'll, seem too concerned about that. Yeah, no, I. but here's, yeah, so I don't want to appeal to her sense of, like, uh-huh. right and wrong, because okay. I don't think that will get us anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I want to appeal to her sense of expediency. Uh-huh. Uh, you don't have enough of, uh, like, your hand is not strong enough that you can ask for that sort of money. Like, you don't have control over his... You mean his, from a purely kind of, like, uh, negotiation perspective, she doesn't have like what a, reason, the leverage. Like, what, yeah, exactly. What reason does her family have to give her a lot of money? Well, let's talk about this as a transaction. Her, mm-hmm. her, the leverage points, they, they want to get rid of her. That's her one leverage. Sure. Um, but they could also stick her with him. Mm-hmm. But they also need, they can put him in a home without, without her. her. Yeah, Can't exactly. They? they don't need her permission to do that. If Is he, that true, though? I don't know what the laws are because they're married and all that. I mean, can you really imagine if her, if her husband deteriorated, deteriorated to a point where he needed around-the-clock care sure. and his children were determined to put him in a retirement community, do you really think she would fight them? She might fight them to get—I mean, since we're going, like, full-on, like, soap opera here, mm-hmm. she might fight them f- to get hospice care— or, she, or in-home nursing as a as a as a concession. She that way, she me, still has access to the house, the money, blah blah blah. She strikes me as the type of she tra- strikes me as opportunistic, not sociopathic. I think she likes Isn't to take yeah yeah absolutely. I think she likes to take <clears throat> the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's the kind of person who would dig in her heels and mm-hmm. say, "I will ruin your father's life. I will stay here day in and day out and like take care of this old man. I'm clearly just done with." But she does want to get the bi- the most out of it that she can get. Right. I, uh, personally, I think you should just leave him. I like you're clearly not going to stick by him. Uh, I think he would probably be better off without you. I don't think you'll make a good partner for him in his old age. Um, I'm worried that you would at best neglect him um, as his health continued to worsen. I think he's better off without you. And I think you're better off without him. You're clearly a person who, uh, uh, you know, you signed up for richer and for better. You've got other sheep to fleece. Yeah, yeah. You've got other stuff to do. Um, I think you should just leave. I don't think you should ask uh, his son for money because I don't think you'll get it. I think you should just file for divorce. Uh, and hope that he didn't sign a prenup. I think you should ask the son for money if that's what you're in this game for. Uh, but I do think that everyone needs to, these, all these people need to part ways. And the only question for her is what's the most she can walk away with. Yeah. I mean, personally, I see nothing wrong with this feels disingenuous. I think this person on some level must know that she's a bad person. Sure. Like, yeah, you're making true. bad choices yeah. and you're bad. <laughs> you know, I like maybe I'm not supposed to say this is an advice columnist. I'm supposed to be like, oh, life's really nuanced. And there like, are layers. We all make mistakes. No, she's a bad person. She's a bad person. We don't know what her if you her make upbringing enough was bad like, choices. We don't you know what her, bad. We don't know what her upbringing was. No, like. we she's don't know, a bad person. Maybe she's like an Mm-mm. adopted child. There's nope. a lot of stuff nope. that you have taken into account. She's a bad person. In fact, I like her. Her idea is tell bad. her to call me. Give her my phone number. <laughs> tell her I'm free Friday night. We can have coffee. You will <laughs> be dead in a month. <laughs> um, this is just not going to work out. No, she, you're a bad person. This idea is cruel. You're a bad person. You're a bad spouse. Um, and yeah, it's a bad idea. Like if you really don't know that, you should. You should be the kind of she bad person that. who knows you're bad. She's fine. She knows I that. think she knows. She yeah. knows that. She doesn't and so, need to right, scold and her. So, and I'm like, okay, fine. If that's your game, if, you're, if your whole shtick is like fleecing people in the in these long cons, mm-hmm. just let, let I mean, see what you can get on the way out. I don't think strategically you have a ton of leverage, but I think you have something. I think you should just like immediately join a soup kitchen and just serve people for the rest of your life. I just think you got a lot to make up for, um, and you're probably not going to do that. Um, yeah, I think you should get really far away from this guy. Like, hopefully he's kind of aware that that's been your game and he won't be too shocked when you leave. I hope that you have not done a really good job convincing him that you care for him um, because that would be really sad. Right. We haven't heard from his point of view. Maybe he would write in and be like, my wife, I love her. She's the love of my life. Yeah, She's she didn't care that I was me. so much older. She didn't care. Oh, yeah, I mean, put a whole he's got kids who love him. I'm not... Right. He'll be okay. Yeah. I just... I... I this is a really sad letter. This yeah. is a letter of somebody yes, who has that, chosen to base her life on um, lying yeah. and and uh, now wants to be really honest about what kind of person she is. And I'm afraid that the people in her life um, are, are going to be more horrified than she realizes. Mm, um, that's interesting. 
Yeah. That's an interesting uh, leap. I, yeah. Right. Like you, you, your dad remarries someone and you think ah, she seems kind of insincere. I don't really know that she cares about him, but you see them together for a long time and you think, okay, she's not for me, but like at least she makes my dad happy. And then she shows up at your house and she says, so as we all know, I never cared for your father. No. And now that it's hard for him to walk, I'd like a lot of money no. to abandon him. Yes. I, the, my, the only quibble I have with what you just suggested is this. I think that they have known the whole time. Actually, mm. so my my own dad had a situation like this where he married really? this woman. Yeah, my your your, your life yes. story is so helpful for all the letters this week. Can I tell you something? Great, I wrote all these letters. That's actually <laughs> I'm taking off the mask. So, <clears throat> so my dad uh, remarried someone after um, his previous wife died, and my brother was like didn't love the quickness with which it happened mm-hmm. and that was the sort of elephant in the room like is she after this guy's money which which I and I don't I don't think she was who even knows it doesn't matter the point is that I know how like quickly that comes up and everyone's mm-hmm. thinking whenever a new person shows up in the family mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's a lot of layers to that I think there's some misogyny there with like not trusting women and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and this idea that like men make all this money and that women just go around fleecing men for money and that that's the natural order of things but, <laughs> sure. yeah. but I do think that that's, that's what I plan on doing after we finish recording today <laughs> just the man with the fanciest hat that I see I'm just going to glom onto him like a remora and just, just clean his out eyes in front of a haberdasher. Um, and so and so I think that the only thing issue I take with your characterization of what these people must be thinking is I feel fairly certain that this woman has never convinced the kids mm-hmm. that she was about anything other than that paper. And so I don't think the kids are at all surprised. I think probably, and then you get siblings and everyone deals with it differently. And so they have the one kid who's like, eh, whatever. And then the other ones are like, fuck her. I'm never talking to her again. And so, uh, I don't think anyone's going to be mortified. It's not like she's taking off the mask. Sure. I think everyone no, knows what fair. she is. I think she knows what she is. That's fair. And I think at this point, it's just a matter of like, how much money can you get on your way out? I don't know. Maybe none. Because like, <clears throat> what's she going to do if they say, no, we're not going to give you any money? Like, well, then I'll stay married to your dad. Well, that's the leverage thing. This is where she really okay. has a gut check for how deep she's in for the game. Right. Like, are you willing to... In for a penny and for a pound. Are you willing to, like keep your husband from contacting his children are you willing to go like full mr burns on this (laughs) um yeah that's why i gotta say just walk away walk away get as much as you can in the divorce settlement and like be happy with that like you've had a great run yeah you got a lot of good living out of this guy yeah and well played you horrible horrible monster i don't think that it's going to be worth your while to try to like scam his family because you don't actually have the leverage you think you do all right Go jump cool. in the lake. That's our ruling. All right. Uh, that was really distressing. Oh, no. I thought th- this one was going to be the light episode, wasn't it? We're no, gonna... it was great. It was okay. great. It was great. It was just like, I don't like that lady. Uh-huh. And I object to the way that she lives her life. Okay. Um, so, uh, good thing is we now have uh, a question that will have no uh, relevance to your own life. <laughs> That's um, what you think. No, they're just, they're, it's, all, it's all you. Uh, this one is called New Baby versus Old Views. Uh, <laughs> you just leaned so far away from the mic and drank water so surreptitiously. Like, <laughs> well, I don't want to like. Maybe if I look really worried, <laughs> it won't make noise. Yes, everyone knows that you drink quieter when you look worried. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so here we go. Dear Prudence, I'm black and my husband is white. We have no problem talking about race and how it's affected our lives. My husband understands white privilege, but the rest of his family doesn't. His mother often says things like, people who find themselves in bad situations just need to work harder, and doesn't believe that institutionalized racism exists. These statements, as well as a few situations where she's treated me like the help and then told me I was playing the race card when I tried to stand up for myself, has led to us not spending much time with his side of the family beyond basic holidays. I feel that I should also point out that his parents and siblings don't have any friends of other races. I'm the only minority in their lives beyond the people that they work with. We're expecting our first baby soon. My fear of the things that they'll say to our mixed-race child is growing. I hear things like, we'll take the baby for the weekend, but I don't want to leave my child with them when I'm out of earshot. I think that they should read White Privilege and Male Privilege by Peggy McIntosh, and then we can talk with them about what their brown grandchild will experience growing up in America. I don't need them to change completely for me, but I don't want them to be an influence on my child with their current views. My husband feels that despite his mother's blinders, his parents deserve babysitting time, and we should deal with issues as they come. 
He thinks that the learning opportunities will present themselves and that will help his mom learn. Do I trust him and see how things play out over time? Or do I push for more candid talks about race before the baby arrives? Okay. I, okay. I feel so strongly that a baby is not a learning strongly. opportunity. Yes. It's a baby. It's going to be a human being. Okay. And it doesn't exist to teach other people cool lessons about themselves. Okay. Yes, of course. When you frame it like that, no. The job <laughs> of a baby is not to teach racists to be less racist. However, here's the thing about family. They're people that we're stuck with that we don't get to choose who they are. And to, I think it, there's a, I think there's a pretty high bar for denying children mm-hmm. chances to interact with a whole side of the family uh, because you don't sort of like the way that family is. What if she offered them a lot of money to go away? <laughs> nice callback. Thank you. Um, and so, so I actually think that she's right. You, or I think the husband's right, sorry. I think the husband's right. Mm-hmm. That you deal with these things as they come up, but that you don't say at this point, obviously you enter the situation with a lot of like, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And I think that this question of leaving them alone for the weekend is a little bit of a different level. That's more than babysitting. That's more than babysitting. Uh, but I also think that that what seems to be an issue here is the question of like, as, as a black, I'm assuming black woman, is mm-hmm. really uncomfortable with the fact that like this kind of white sort of like, quote unquote, benign racist family are now her in-laws. And now as a taking it one step further her children's actual family members, mm-hmm. that that's terrifying for her. Mm-hmm. And, like, the question is, like, how do you deal with that fear? Yeah. Right? And I think that one of the things that we know about in-laws is that your relationships with them are long. Mm-hmm. It's not like I have to, like, go have lunch with this person who's kind of a racist. It's like I'm going to be a, a family member, and we're going to do all kinds of things together. Sometimes we're going to be watching, like, a football game, and, like, everyone's going to be in a good mood. And then sometimes at dinner, someone's going to say some, like, foul shit, and I'm going to be really pissed. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's so many iterations of it. That I think as a parent, as scary as it is, mm-hmm. you can't just d- decide at the beginning, no, no access, that's it. You're oh, cut and off. that's not the question. Sure. <clears throat> so the question so then so then if you can't do that, then it's like, what can you do? And I think at this point you have to like because children should have an a an um the possibility of building a relationship with someone in their family, you have to let that happen. And at some point later, if the kids will say God, I really don't like going to these people's house, mm-hmm. houses. It's a little stressful. They say some racist shit. Then it, I think when they're older, you can uh, honor that and acknowledge that. But I also think that as a parent, the whole time, you're you're keeping an eye on what's happening and you're like talking with your kids about the way different people process race because here's where the real learning is. Mm-hmm. F- screw teaching this kids, this guy's family to be less racist. It's also teaching your kids how to see the humanity in people that you don't, that that you actually, that have problems. Because you can't live in America as a black person or a mixed person and just go around being like, fuck every single person that has some racist views because there's just, it just doesn't, it's just like numerically an impossible proposition. Right. So here's my question though is, is she's not asking, can I just say fuck off? Mm -hmm. She's asking, can I initiate a conversation before the baby comes? Or do we wait until they say some racist shit to my kid? That's her question. Yeah, I mean... These things are so difficult Hmm. to initiate conversations around. The question is... I mean, the person who should initiate the conversation should be the husband. I was going to say, maybe one thing that would be helpful, because I, I, I think you're right. I think it's going to be really hard for her to say, can you read this book called White Privilege? No one's going to read that shit. Um, but I think she and her yeah. husband can have this conversation a lot before the baby comes, because it sounds like he's pretty much on her side. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like for her to say, here's my concerns with your family. I'm worried, like, if if X, Y, and Z happens, like, can we have a plan in place? Can we have, like, some way for us to sort of communicate with each other? Uh, When will you know that I want you to intervene? When am I going to go take a walk? When are we going to try to argue something out? Like, does that make sense? Like, for the two of them to have a couple conversations around their plan. Yeah, and I also think that she has, like, 
I, I don't think she, this woman has to be the one that brings the ta- the conversation to the table right. about race for this whole family. Right. That's absurd. Yeah, that shouldn't be on her. It should be on him. Yeah. It should be on him because it's not her black kid. It's his child. Yeah. So he has to be the one that says like, hey, look, this is my child. This is my family. If you ha-, And however that family communicates. Some families you can say, hey, let's read this book and have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Some families you communicate the same thing by being like, this is my kid. You say some shit, I'll punch you in the nose. Like that's the way some families are. Sure. I don't know. I yeah. don't know how this guy's family gets down. But like he's got to be the one that does that. And I yeah. think so. Um, yeah, maybe you're right that like the chain of command is like she talks to him. And, and but definitely I think. So definitely I think that, like, he has to be the one that has the conversation. But I also, I tend to be more in line with the idea that mixed-race kids, It's there's a high bar for when you deny mixed-race kids access to their white, slightly racist, super Americana family. Mm-hmm. I think the kids actually do a really good job of dealing with that if you do a good job of parenting them around that. Right. And I, and I think for a lot of people, the fear and the hurt around racism is so great that our default position is to be like, no, mm-hmm. like no access or whatever, like fuck these people. Mm-hmm. But I think that in reality, you kind of have to take a little bit of a longer view. Yeah. No, and it does seem like, it sounds like she and her husband communicate really well. Mm. It sounds like he's got like fairly decent levels of awareness. Mm. Um, and 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 so that's that's a lot easier than if it were, and my husband doesn't think this is a problem. Yes. That would be really hard. Although the question that I have is like, it's hard. I, it's, I would keep an eye on this husband (laughs) because it's hard to imagine someone coming from a family like this Mm -hmm. and no one in the family is like woke in the least. And then suddenly he's like a hundred percent. One thing I found about having kids and Mm -hmm. having kids with someone is that, uh, people revert back Mm -hmm. to their roots in ways that you could not have predicted when children enter the picture. Okay. So that's something that you should probably keep an eye on. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's it's woke or that your husband's like secretly a clan member. Sure. But that things come up over time where people, the older you get, the more you sort of like re- revert to your default settings, particularly with kids, because you then start unconsciously replaying the same things that you experienced when you were that age. Mm. So when your kid is four, you start acting the way your parents acted when you were four, because it's all you know, and right. you don't have any other, you don't, you know, it's crazy. You right. Know, so. There's also a, kind of a spectrum of what she's talking about. Like, uh, there's moments where she's mentioned that his mother has said sort of like broadly racist things just mm-hmm. about groups of people. Mm-hmm. And then she also says there's times when she's treated me like the help mm-hmm. and like i think one of those is a lot more serious, serious than, the, than other. the other yeah like one has to do with the way that she treats you yeah um and it again it sounds like her husband stood up for her in that moment which is great and i think also to kind of have a clear line of like if she treats our child differently from like other white grandchildren or tries to to treat them in any way like the help like yeah. let's have a really clear exit strategy that's for exactly that. right yeah and this idea that people are, are accused of playing the race card for having any experience around race which is like saying anytime we're going to talk about race you don't get to that's right which is awful yeah yeah so good luck wow i don't want to be in these people's position i wish them the best of luck i hope their marriage is very strong yep um, because having kids is really hard, and then having kids and dealing with cross-cultural stuff and, like, racism, just, hey, fingers crossed, guys. Yeah, yeah, and I really hope that uh, your husband, like, does his due diligence in um, kind of being the bridge between you and his family and advocating for you and your kids. Yeah, and I think this is something that you and I were talking about a little bit earlier today, that, like, uh, like that, like, being in, like, the level of, in order to help as a white person, it's like so much more than you think. Hmm. I think there was there was a long while when people when white people were like, "Well, if I'm not bad, then I'm part of the solution." And then it was like, "Okay, I'm not bad," and then I'm and then I say something every once in a while, I'm part of the solution. But like, the situation for that woman is so painful and multilayered and complex that like that husband can't just be like, "I'm a decent dude," yeah. and I said something once to my mother. Who was out of hand? Like this has to be something that he really has to be active about in order for him to make an impact. I feel like I'm about to use another sports metaphor. Uh oh. Would it be right to say that in this situation, the best offense is a good defense? He should be running interference. He should be throwing interferences. You're, you're. I'm getting away from it. Yeah, you were, you were, 
you were in a zone. Okay. I don't know if you were in the zone, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. entered a zone. Okay. And I think that's I'm in a place. We should celebrate that. I'm occupying time and space. Yes. Thank you. Especially being being that you're a member of the participation trophy generation. I sure am. You you don't need to win that sports metaphor. We're just glad that you showed up. <laughs> it's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> uh, Carvel, thank you very much for I joining really us in the studio. Uh, we'll have to have you back sometime. Absolutely. I want to close all of these wonderful financially related letters uh, by looking at what happens when you turn a relationship into a financial transaction, when you sort of buy into the idea that the party that makes more money should have more say in your relationship and that the person who makes less money um, doesn't get to contribute in the same way to household decisions. That is how you end up as the second Mrs. De Winter in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, where she wanders through the halls of Manderley, too afraid to ask if she can have her tea in her room instead of the library, which is drafty and full of the creepy old Mrs. Danvers, reminding her of how great the first Mrs. De Winter was, who had her own money and as such could say bow to a goose. Uh, that's what happens. You end up being Joan Fontaine, wandering around, getting yelled at by Laurence Olivier, and he says things like, didn't you know I hated Rebecca? And it's like, of course she didn't know you hated Rebecca. You never once said you hated Rebecca. You don't let her ask questions. Creepy guys show up at the house and intimidate the hell out of her. You never smile at her. And you ruin parties by failing to mention things like, by the way, don't ever wear the beautiful dress in the portrait adorning the hall in like the main entryway because I hated my first wife. So she does all this to please you and shows up wearing that dress and you throw a fit. Um, And that's because they had a transactional relationship where she felt like she couldn't say anything because he, quote unquote, saved her from financial ruin because she was just a sad little lady's companion. And he's rich old Dr. Manderley. I cannot remember his given name right now. Maxim. It was Maxim. I remember because Joan Fontaine was always sort of like nervously saying things like, aren't we happy, Maxim? Um, And they weren't. They never were. Um, And it was sad. And then their house burned down. So if you... Let money add weight to your opinion in a relationship. Your house will burn down and you will never be happy. And that's all the advice I have for you today. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like the show please go to iTunes and write us a review. iTunes is an opaque overlord, but we do know that reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Plus, we'd like to know what you think. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. If you want us to answer your question, call and leave us a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327. And we might give you an answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. If you want, you can also record your question using the Voice Memo app or its equivalent on your smartphone. When you record your questions, please keep it short, 30 seconds or a minute tops. Send it to us at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. I guess my question is, how does she know that those four belong to her? Like, do they have her name written on? Are they, like, color-coded? Well, he, he just he How's he going to remember that those four belong to her? That's what I was concerned about. Is like, how does he remember... Unless he unless he color codes them, which would actually be the smart way to go. Or about that. hang on, has a little tiny portrait painted on the inside of each pearl <laughs> like, of each gal. I feel like that's super labor intensive. If you are like you a know labor what I mean. Of love. I mean, if he cares enough to get a tattoo of forty two rosary bead slash pearls uh-huh. on his back, uh-huh. uh, I think he can go the extra mile and get little tiny. Um, you know, like when they paint your when they like, like write your name, name in rice. rice. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, but yeah. that guy's a specialist. I don't know that you're running. I really hope we're recording guy. all of this. <laughs>